0: To the Coaches Rising podcast. Today I am joined again by Michael Bungay Stanier. It's been a few years since I've had him on the podcast. Uh, We're going to talk about Michael's latest book, How to Work with Almost Everyone. And what I really appreciate about this conversation and this book is how can we consciously create and maintain the relationships in our life, not only with working colleagues, but friends, family. Something that we often do is just get into relationship. We don't actually take the time to step out of it and, and design the collaboration, design the contracting around that relationship. And so we're going to talk about how we can begin to do that. So if you don't know Michael, Michael is a well-known voice in the field of coaching and beyond that. His books have sold over a million copies and the coaching habit topped the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. His work has been featured on blogs and social media platforms of thought leaders such as Seth Godin, Tim Ferriss and Brene Brown. He is the founder of Box of Crayons. You can find a lot of his work at mbs.works. I'd just like to take a moment to tell you about inside coaching leaders it's our self-study training program which is enrolling and what we did to create this program was to invite some of the best coaches we know masterful coaches and we recorded them coaching someone and then debriefed afterwards and what i like about this program other than that you get to see these masterful coaches at work and and then afterwards hear, why did you ask that question why did you do this we also have an incredible lineup of coaches from the vice president at a professional services company to the CEO of a global AI company, the managing director of a multinational drinks manufacturer, the head of organizational performance in a global management consultancy, and many other really amazing executive leadership clients and they're bringing their real life leadership executive coaching challenges and you'll see these coaches work with them so if you want to find out more about this program you can head to coachesrising.com inside coaching leaders and enrollment is open now until the end of 7th of july 2023 all right let's dive in here's the podcast with michael bungay Stania. Michael, it's good to be with you. <laughs> nice to see you again, Joel. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's been a while. And, um, but I, you know, I had so much fun last time we spoke. So we've set that as a bar now. You've got to be exactly. as funny as last time. That's,
1: that is a terrible, terrible thing to have done. I only work well with very low expectations. So <laughs> for everybody who's tuned in for an exciting part two, I'm afraid it's all downhill from here. <laughs> but this may be as funny as I get. I'm probably I'm, I'm just going to be Probably slightly tedious and slightly pedantic for the rest of this conversation. <laughs> yeah.
0: And I should say, people also really enjoyed the information, the, the the wisdom, the content you brought last time, not just your humour as well. You know, so. I, I am I primarily
1: write books, so I can appear on podcasts where I can try and pretend that I'm a stand up comedian. I mean, I don't actually care about any of the stuff I write about. It's all <laughs> a very complicated plan to launch my comedy career. Saturday Night Live. It's so close.
0: I can feel it. I can taste it. <laughs> this is going to be the podcast that takes you over that edge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, we are here as well then in the guise to talk about uh, your new book. So mm. um, actually, let me just, before I ask you about that, can I ask one question, which is, I was just curious about, which is how do you decide what to write about? What's, what's that process of, of like tuning into what the next book is? Yeah. It's a good question Uh, because I have ideas all the time (laughs) about
1: things I could create. Sometimes they're books, sometimes they're courses, sometimes they're just random ideas. And so many of them are terrible, (laughs) but never, none of them sound terrible. The first time I hear them in my own (laughs) head, I'm like, Oh, Michael, you're a genius. You've got nobody's ever thought of this before. And what I do is I, um, I've learned to write it down on a scrap of paper and I have just in a folder over by my desk here, a little folder that says book ideas and I just throw all my ideas there. And then when the time comes for me to have a think about what's the next big project, I'll, I'll often go through that and see what shows up. Um, it's, it's, it's often a kind of a relatively thick pile and you'd think, well, there's going to be a lot of really interesting ideas here. What tends to be there is the same idea written down about 30 times because I keep going, oh, this is a brilliant idea, forgetting that I had that idea four days ago or four weeks ago, whatever it might be. So I um, I try and capture the fleeting ideas that I have, but but don't worry about them too much. I'll put them aside and make sure I can find them later. But in my the last book I wrote about a year ago called How to Begin, I talk about what it means to set a worthy goal and a worthy goal has three attributes to it. It's thrilling, important, and daunting. So thrilling means that it kind of lights you up and gets you excited and kind of says, yeah, this would be kind of cool to do. And you want to have some of that. But for me, just being excited about it isn't enough. I also want it to be important, meaning it gives more to the world than it takes. It's a contribution. It's of service. So how do I make it important? Um, and what's my sense of whether this idea is useful and important enough. And then daunting is, is this going to stretch me and grow me and, and challenge me? And for a worthy goal, you're looking for the best possible combination of those three things. It, it, if you can get seven out of seven for all three attributes, that's amazing. But often it's not quite that. But you're trying to play around and, and fine tune the idea until you You find a goal that feels both internally and externally motivating. And that's broadly the the approach I use to try and figure out what the next project is for me. It's not always the next book. It's what's the next project for me to put my attention to. And I'm trying to find something that is thrilling and important and daunting. And then a a key framework I use, and this might be good for all the coaches listening in, is I take my best guess because I noticed that it's very easy to get a bit paralyzed when it comes to committing (laughs) like, Oh, maybe this, but it's a bit scary and I don't know. And maybe I'll dabble or find other reasons to procrastinate. And um, what I've learned is that you don't really know how, how things are going to play out or whether even this is the right guess until you, you commit to it and you start trying it out. So I take Hmm. my best guess. And then I go for it. And sometimes these things trickle off and I'm like, that turned out to be, um, a, a guess a, a bet that didn't play out. Um, but often because I've done that thinking around thrilling and important and daunting, it means that in those early moments of doubt, you know, cause when you're at the start of a project or you're starting to write a book, it's just, it's, you know, it's a, sw- it's a swirl of crappiness basically, as you're trying to articulate <laughs> what you're trying to say and you're trying to, Put words to an idea and you're trying to find the form and the, the structure and you're trying to imagine an, an audience for it, it's, it's kind of messy and confusing and ambiguous and a bit underwhelming. But with thrilling, important and daunting as a kind of framework, it's enough to keep you going longer until you find traction or you find clarity that this isn't a good idea. So in short, my best guess <laughs> is how I work it out. And I'm like, of all the things I could do, and and to be honest, there's probably one other factor here, and it probably ties into thrilling, important running in some way. But you know, for me, um, I'm I am a writer, and so part of how I earn a living is through the books that I write and and the stuff that's associated with those books. So part of it's also me looking at my my business ecosystem and going, does this fit with this, or does it not fit with that? Um, and it doesn't always have to fit with that for it to be a project I want to pursue. But it's one of those considerations, which is: Does this feel commercial at all? Can I? Could I? Would people buy this, <laughs> or is there some
0: weird indulgence from from Michael? Yeah, nice. And and like just one last question on this before. Sounds like there is often a theme that grabs a hold of you. You know, you said like often thirty of these different, seeming different ideas are actually are out the same topic. Yeah. It's not even, I mean, honestly,
1: often it's just the same idea I've written down. (laughs) Like this new book that we're about to talk about is called How to Work with Almost Anyone. And here's the singular idea in this book. Have a conversation about how you'll work together before you have a conversation about what you're going to work on so that you can build better, more resilient, more fulfilling relationships. That's the idea. Now, I've been talking about this and teaching it in various forms for Twenty years, perhaps, um, you know, it has its origin in, um, for me anyway, from a guy called Peter Block, who's one of my favorite writers and a very, he influences all my, my thinking and writing. He called it social contracting um, and I've used it with my clients and with my teammates and, and also taught it to other people who have clients and stuff. And I just think it's a really valuable thing and a rare thing. I think it's, a, it's something that not many of us are good at. And when you think about how important relationships are to our happiness and our success, um, I just felt like this could be a really helpful thing that to, to, to write about that I haven't seen, I haven't seen anywhere else. So it's a singular idea. I looked in my idea folder. I'm like social contracting conversation. You no, know, that kind of like solid idea comes up. And when I'm trying to write a book, I'm trying to I'm trying to teach a singular thing. Like for me, a goal of writing a book is what's the shortest book I can write that's the most useful? And having a good idea that is the point of the book is something that has been role model for me by people like Edward de Bono and Seth Godin and Tom Peters. So I'm like one idea in a book. Um, and I just thought this is the most useful book I could write right now. It's the most useful thing I have to offer that could be – broadly applicable for a bunch of people
0: yeah beautiful let's actually i mean just to say that's one of the things i really appreciate about reading this book and some of your others as well is that you can yeah it it is singular and you can kind of get right into it and apply it quickly so uh yeah you know review that when it comes to doing a podcast with someone that's also super helpful right um but yeah, let's talk about the book a bit. So you've already said why, you know, in a way why you were motivated to write it. I'm just curious if you could say a little bit more about the impact you, you hope it has on people and their kinds of relationships they can start to have.
1: Well, I, I would perhaps ask the audience to imagine a, few, a couple of things. I mean, if you, and um, Joel, you can do this as well, of course. If you think for a moment, Back to your past, and maybe even in your present, and you think of a really slightly miserable working relationship. My guess is that you've had one. It could be, you know, you and it it could be with a boss, could be with somebody that you lead, it could be with an employee, it could be with a client, it could even be with a vendor. We've all had, you know, at least one working relationship where you're like, "This basically sucks. (laughs) This is hard." And you know, it could be because you know the other person is an you know, a nutcase in their own special way. But sometimes it's just like that nobody's broken particularly. We're just just unable to click. You know, there's sand in the gears. We we rub each other the wrong way. We, we don't get each other. We don't click. And if you imagine that moment and that relationship, and you can imagine the back and forth and the frustrations and the arguments or the passive-aggressive non-arguments, whatever it is for you, and then if you imagine the impact it had, remember the impact it had on you. And just feel that. and notice how it made you lose your confidence and, sh- and, and shrunk you and diminished you and made you more timid and made you less brave and made you your work less good, um, and made you kind of doubt just your capacity and your uh, dented your confidence. And this has nothing to do with the work. It wasn't about the work. It was about that working relationship and the frustration of it. Um, and then if you take the flip side of it and you imagine one of the really good working relationships you've had, again, it could be with a boss who really got you. It could be somebody on your team where you really clicked. It could be with a client where you're like, oh man, I was, a, I was on fire when I was working with this person because I just felt always on and useful and connected. It was brilliant um and again it's nothing to do with the content of the work it is around the impact that had on you and by the way of course the impact it had on them as well but let's just focus on you at the moment and how it made you bolder and braver and expanded your sense of self and encouraged you to take some risks and kind of tapped into your zone of genius amazing and yet most of the time with our working relationships, we just kind of cross our fingers and hope like, Hey, I I hope this plays out to be a brilliant relationship. And I hope this doesn't suck as a relationship. All right, let's see. And you, and you kind of leap into it. And when it does go off the rails, because of course, every working relationship goes off the rails at some stage, you know, it can be a big explosion, but more often it's a, it's a dent, it's a crack. It's a kind of jag sideways. Um, people don't really know what to do with that. And so for me, I'm like, how do I help people build the language I'm using? And you said it right at the start is the best possible relationship. In other words, the best version of what this you and this other person could build together as a relationship, something that is safe and vital, alive and repairable because above and beyond the quality of the work getting done, look at the impact that it has on you
0: and your humanity. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's everything, isn't it? Um, uh, if you, I, as you were speaking about that, I was just thinking about some of those different types of relationships and it's, yeah. it's kind of everything. Yeah. You were right? crying during that first one. I could
1: actually see tears welling up in your head, <laughs> but it's, yeah. but it really, I mean, I can, you know, if you ask me what the bad relationships I've had and working, I can point to three or four mm. that really dented my confidence, you know, really, had me feeling stuck and flailing and, um, and and giving up. That's what I, well, I, people have different reactions, but I end up kind of just resigned to misery. Um, and, you know, sometimes the, the person quit, which helped me <laughs> because I was, I was her boss. Sometimes I got fired by somebody that helped me because I was otherwise stuck. You know, I've been rescued from those bad relationships a few times, but I wish I could have rescued myself or, or at least done all I could have to have given that working relationship the best shot. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Maybe maybe we could then dive into how can we set that up to Mm. give ourselves the best shot. I know you, you write about the keystone conversation and these five essential questions. So yeah, I guess like, we're just wondering, yeah. What do you, what's your, what are you recommending? (laughs) Basically, How
1: do I do that? How do you do it, it? How do I do that? Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about the keystone conversation, and, and in the conversation, I suggest five useful questions to ask and answer that can help set this up. But you know, if people are looking for the, this is this podcast is way too long, and I don't have time to listen to it all. If you're asking, you know, what's the what's the one sentence answer? You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. Have a conversation about how you're going to work together, before or separate to what we're going to work on, and. You know, in, in summary it would sound something like this. Hey, you and I are gonna to work together, Joel. Hey, what, what should we do and not do to make that work best for you? <laughs> what, what what you know, and and exchange that information so you've got data and guidance on how to be the best possible partner with another person. So I've kind of formalized that and and as I say, got five good questions to ask. But it's called a keystone conversation. And the me- why I chose that metaphor is Um, because it turns out keystone has a double meaning. Lots of people will know the the first meaning, which is the keystone in an arch. You know, it's the top stone in the arch. It's what allows these two pillars to come together and connect and stabilize and get stronger and bear weight and bear stress. So it's like a great architectural metaphor. But as I was doing the research for the book around this, I found there was something called a keystone species in the world of biology and ecology. Um, And it is the species that has the most impact on an ecology. And the best story I know about that is um, the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone National Park in in America. Um, So there were were wolves. They got hunted into extinction. Uh, I think in the 80s, they were reintroduced. And it changed for the better the whole um the whole system of this park, because prior to the wolves being reintroduced, there were too many elk, and the elk were the kind of the dominant animal they were eating all the trees and elk are big, so they're eating all the trees um that meant there was a denuded vegetation which meant fewer animals and fewer birds, and um uh an impact on the river. But when the wolves came in, they started eating all the elk (laughs) and also scaring the elk so they were uh, more contained. That meant that more trees, that meant more birds, that meant the river changed direction, that meant more fish and more beavers in the river, that meant more birds again. I mean, the whole thing became richer and more diverse, better able to be resilient, better able to be stressed. So if you're listening and you're like, well, I'm a, I'm a kind of architect geek, you're like, oh, take the ar- keystone from the arch metaphor. And if you're like, I'm a nature buff, you're like, perfect. Take the keystone species. Either way, whatever metaphor works for you, it's this idea that a singular thing can have an outsized impact on the system, allow it to bear stress, be stronger, and become more solid over time. And that's what I think this conversation about, how will we work together? can be so effective, which is like, it's going to not just be a one-off, it's going to have an ongoing impact on the strength and the resilience and the vitality and the ability to repair itself over time.
0: Mm, Nice. Yeah. 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 I think that's a really really powerful metaphor. So um, then how, yeah, how do we have that come? What's important about that keystone conversation basically? How do we have it? Yeah. Well, look, there are five questions.
1: And uh, I'll get to those in just a second. But the three main phases of this is, first of all, do a little bit of prep (laughs) before you have this conversation. I mean, you don't have to, but it's helpful for everybody if everybody's had a little bit of a think about the questions. Secondly, be brave enough to have the conversation. Because I know at least one of your listeners is thinking, well, this sounds good in theory. It also sounds awkward and a bit weird. And how would I even do that? (laughs) I I haven't really done that before. I'm like, you are not alone. It is a bit weird and a bit awkward. And part of the, if you like, call to action in the book and in this podcast is be the person brave enough to start this conversation because it can make all the difference. And then the third phase is after you've had the conversation is maintenance. How do you keep the relationship carrying on? Because the conversation itself is powerful. But the really powerful outcome of the conversation is permission to keep addressing the health and the vitality of the working relationship. In other words, to actively manage it rather than passively hope that it's all going to work out. But if you go right or the back, rewind, preparing for the keystone conversation is a really smart thing to do. And to do that, you need to know what the five questions are. So why don't we talk about some of the five questions? And the first one is... What's your best? What's your best? And, you know, since putting the book into the <laughs> – getting it printed and published, I'm like, I, I'm not totally sure that's the best phrasing of a question because it's a bit abstract and it's a bit awkward. But the, the origin of that is I didn't want to say, what are you good at? Because that feels limiting. And I didn't want to say, what are your strengths? Because that feels tired and abstract. I wanted to say, what's your best? Because I wanted you, to, I wanted, if I'm asking that of you, Joel, I'm like, tell me when you shine, tell me when you flow. That's what's at the essence of this, which is like, what are the, what's the stuff you work on that kind of lights you up, gets you excited, brings out your best, helps you shine. What are the ways you show up in human interactions with people that is kind of allows you to be the very best version of yourself is your great contribution to a community. And kind of what are the essential qualities of who you are, your values or the things that you're like, this is just something amazing that I can contribute to the world. What, what does that look like? And it expands the conversation from, well, look, here's, here are my five words from strength finder or whatever it is to give me, a, give me some stories about when you shine and when you flow, because if I'm working with you, how fantastic for me to know that that's what, that's what you look like when you're in your, in that space, in your best. And by the way, I want you to know that about me as well. I like, you know, if I'm, if I'm a coach and I'm having this conversation with a client, I'm like, let me tell you when I'm at my best as a coach, this is, this is where I really shine. This is what I'm absolutely best at. And if I'm hearing from you, which is like, let me hear when you're at your best as a client, when you're really showing up going, this is how I am most open, most excited, most willing to be a a client, as well as kind of how I show up in the rest of my life. So helpful in terms of us going, we we should do more of that. (laughs) Whatever the best is, let's try and bring that out in both of us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I mean, uh, as you're talking about it, I just get a sense of how potent social contracting is actually in terms of coaching, because you, you know, with this first question and I, I, and I'm aware of some of the others, you're getting to know somebody on such a deeper level and, and you're, you just don't often have those types of conversations with people. That's so. right.
1: And, and, you know, if you have, I mean, people listening probably or may know me from my book, The Coaching Habit, which is this, you know this kind of good selling book in the in the world of coaching. Um, and you know, the first question on that is, "What's on your mind?" And it's kind of, and then, "What's the real challenge here for you?" So, even in those questions, I'm like, "Let's talk about the work." It assumes that the relationship is kind of there. It's like, and when you start working with somebody as a coach, you're like, "Great, you've hired me as a coach." how can I help? What are you up against? What's the challenge that you're facing? You know, what would be, what would success look like? You know, if I've been a brilliant coach, what will you have achieved What will you have started or whatever you have stopped, you know, it's all about the work and, it, and it feels like that's the place to go because it is exciting. Plus it's the, why they hide you in the first place. That's why they're going to give you money, you know, and you're like, I need to prove my value. So let's get on with it. Let's get into this whole idea about me helping you solve the challenges or address the challenges that you're up against. And there's there's plenty of time for that. But if you don't have that strong working relationship, it will limit your capacity and your ability to actually get the work done. Yeah, totally, totally. And I'll say one other thing, Joel, because I'm on a soapbox yeah. this morning, you can tell. I um partly why I wrote this is that I thought Peter Block's idea of social contracting. Social contracting is a a slightly awkward phrase. It's got kind of nods to 17th century British philosophy. And it's a bit it's a bit abstract, I guess. Um, but but What's really powerful within that is this idea of contracting, because in legal terms, a contract is an equal exchange of value. Actually, in the dark, distant past, did a law degree. Didn't go well because I I finished my law degree being sued by one of my law professors for defamation. So I was never going to be a lawyer. But I do remember that in contracting, which is the very first class I ever took, it's like a contract is an equal exchange of value. Famous lawsuit about the peppercorn, which is like a peppercorn rent, which is like if I'm renting a place and I give you a peppercorn, you know, a single grain of pepper, that is that is considered an exchange of value. Um, but one of the key elements of this idea that I'm sharing with you is you ask and you answer these questions. You don't just ask. The temptation as a coach will be just to ask because you'll get, to, you'll get to listen, you'll get to be more coach-like, they'll feel more heard, you'll get all this useful data. But for it to be a contract, it needs to be an exchange of value. So you need to share and you need to give. And in fact, for all of you listening, there's some value in you, you sharing first because you set the parameters of vulnerability and courage in what you share um, you know the the extent to which you share will be the extent to which the other person shares. So if you're looking for heartfelt truths and and vulnerability and and real talk, you need to kind of lead the way on that.
0: Well, and also you you I think and you write about safety in your your this, this book as well. But it, it's um, mm-hmm. you're you're being vulnerable. You're um, leveling out the power dynamic more by sharing right. yourself and that that's powerful i think in coaching and plus you you can um kind of set the the parameters of of not just uh, vulnerability but also potential and possibility yeah. you know like a high high bar too you know
1: yeah, yeah yeah i i love that you're pointing to that because uh a kind of key theme and like an underground river running through all of my work is this kind of idea of kind of disrupting power structures and disrupting hierarchy you know For me, helping managers and leaders be more coach-like in organizations is not just a, here's a good leadership act. It's actually a way that power and hierarchy gets disrupted a bit because when you move from the person giving advice to the person asking a question, you hand some of your power to that other person. And I love that. So I love that you're picking this up in this conversation as well. And you're absolutely right, which is... You're encouraging people to build adult-to-adult relationships, which, you know, essentially have a better sharing of power
0: and responsibility and accountability in that. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Should we, do you want to talk a bit more about this question or do you want to talk about some of the other questions? It'd be good yeah. to kind of move through them at least. Yeah.
1: Well, let's, let's talk about... Maybe let's not share all the questions because I'd like some people to go, what's question number two or question number five? I should buy Michael's book, which you should. Sure, yes. <laughs> um, but let me give you questions three and four because I think they're really helpful as well. Um, these are the the good date and the bad date questions. And they kind of, uh, they're, they're cousin questions or sister questions. I'm not sure what the family relationship is exactly. But the good date question is, what can we learn from past successful relationships? And the bad day question is, what can we learn from past frustrating relationships? And the key insight is this, the patterns from your past relationships will repeat again in your future relationships. Even though those past relationships have different contexts, different people, and you're a different person, and everything's changed, yeah, but not everything's changed. It's like a river. You know, the river is constantly changing, but the the eddies stay the same. <laughs> the the standing waves stay stay the same. So these patterns from your past relationship will continue to show up. So why don't you share some of that so that both of you can learn from the the glories and the messes from your past. So when you start with the uh, actually the the kind of the exchange of information is really the same for both of them, which is what was said and what was not said, what was done and what was not done that made this relationship successful or made this relationship frustrating and i I think the 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 two the two places to look that often aren't looked at, but I think are actually pretty interesting is when you think about the frustrating relationships in particular, rather than spending a lot of time talking about what that other person did and said and how they drove you nuts and how they were a terrible person and how it's a, it's a miracle that you, got, you survived and you're a noble martyr for having got through all of that, actually hold up a mirror and go, what was your contribution to those dysfunctional relationships? Because I know that other person probably contributed more than 50%. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt on that. But what's interesting and what's within your sphere of control and influence is your role in that. And when you answer that, I also think the other thing to think about is what was not said and what was not done. You know, there's a I'm not I'm not a religious person, but I think there's this distinction between sins of commission and sins of omission sins of commission of the stuff that you did, sins of omission of the stuff that you didn't do. So how, how, how is your lack of speaking up? How is your lack of action contributing to that? And you can take that into the good, the good dates as well. You know, the successful relationship, which was like, what didn't you do that helped that relationship thrive? <laughs> I might go, you know what, I didn't get twitchy. And I didn't step in and start micromanaging the hell out of people, which is a pattern that shows up in my bad dates. That really allowed that relationship to thrive. Um, so, uh, either way, you use that, you're building stories. And, Joel, if you and I were going to sit down and start working together, either as you coaching me, as a, I'm, I'm your client, or you and I are maybe starting a business together, or you're, um, I've hired you and you're reporting it to me and my team. I'm like, tell me, tell me about bad bosses, you know, Joel, like, <laughs> and tell me about good bosses. Cause I'd like to avoid being a bad boss. And I'd like to step into being a good boss. And if you go, you know, for me, a really good boss is really good at giving me ongoing ceaseless feedback about all the stuff I'm doing. I can go, I'm not good at that. <laughs> you know, that's not that's not how I'm a good boss. I am a, um look, I have full trust. I'm gonna encourage you to go your way, I've got your back, but I'm I'm not I'm, I'm not kind of gonna get micromanagery with you. You're 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 kind of figuring this out on your own. You need to be self-sufficient. And now we see this gap between good for you and good for me. So now we go, well, what do we do about that? You know, how do we figure that out? How do we work together around that? And when the moment comes when you are pissed off with me because I'm like, I needed regular feedback. And I'm like, well, I don't give regular feedback. We'll have a better chance of figuring out how to repair that because you didn't have an unspoken assumption of regular feedback. And I didn't have an unspoken assumption of, well, I'll just be doing all this by myself and I'll be fine. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Everybody listening. I'm sorry. There's a lot. I'm I'm I'm, 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 um, I'm, 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 I'm had too many coffees this morning, so there's a lot coming at you as I talk about this. So um, maybe you can listen to this at
0: half speed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Hey, but no, I I, like I again. What I'm struck by is how you know coaches listening to this, but we should be doing this much more often because, like you said at the beginning, we're setting ourselves up for success more because we're we're surfacing all the things that might potentially show up, uh, in terms of getting in the way. Uh, but we're also, um, you know, maybe, maybe able to kind of clarify two or three things that we could do that really will, um, that's how I thrive, you know? So, yeah, you know, so we're basically uh, designing the relationship for, for more success. And then I think what you said earlier is that it's also now become, uh, like a practice or something, you know, like, okay, we did that at the start. We're not just leaving it, you know, to look, so, it's become part of our relationship that we talk about our relationship and how exactly. it's going.
1: So, that's, uh, that's kind of there's, there are two unexpected benefits from kind of committing to this practice. Um, the, the expected benefit is you get information in the moment to help you navigate and co create, co construct uh, the best possible working relationship with that other person. You're like, hey, you've given me good information about how to repair it, what our working practices are, what good looks like, what bad looks like. That gives us a better chance of hitting some of that stuff that we want. But the unexpected benefits are twofold. The first is that it gives you permission to keep talking about the health of the relationship. So, Joel, if you and I are working together, it means every now and then I can go, hey, Joel, how are we doing? (laughs) How are you doing? How am I doing? How are we doing? And you get to kind of keep checking in on the health of the relationship. So this, it's a fundamental unlock, which is let's talk about it. Um, both when you're not even sure if it's good or bad, you're like, I think it's going okay. You can talk about when it's going really well. And you can talk about it when you're like, I've got this feeling that this, some, something's off. Um, and rather than going, as I've done so a bazillion times in my own life, maybe if I close my eyes and just go, la, 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 maybe it'll go <laughs> away. Maybe it'll just miraculously solve itself. Um, and of course, actually, relationships are, to an extent, self-healing. You know, there'll be this moment, and then if everybody ignores it, it kind of gets stitched up through time and necessity, and, you know, we've got to keep figuring this out. But if you're more actively managing it, there's a way that that gets sorted out faster and healed more thoroughly. The other unexpected benefit, the second unexpected benefit is you deepen your own self-awareness. So in the how to work with almost anyone book, um, each of the five questions of the Keystone Conversation have three exercises that come with it to help you find more nuanced language and insight and ability to articulate your answer to those questions. So as a coach, you know, there are 15 facilitated exercises that you can take your own clients through to kind of say, here's a way for you to learn, to talk about yourself, to understand yourself. Because when you're having this conversation with your clients, you're not just training them to have better working relationships with you. You're training them to have better working relationships with all the people that they work with. And I hope I hope that this kind of books builds over. So it's not like, not just the people you work with, but the people you be with, <laughs> you know, it's like all of the key relationships in your life, whether they're clients or team members or whatever, or family or daughters or, or parents um, all of that can be powerful. And in fact, let me um, carry on the monologue and <laughs> Joel, um, you know, one of the you asked me right at the start of this conversation. You know, how did I get this idea? What made me think about this? Well, there was a cataly- a catalyzing moment um, about two years ago. Um, my dad was dying in Australia, and I was living in my parents' house um, with my mom and dad. Dad had come back from hospital. He was in uh, he was housebound. He was still able to get up and move around, but he spent a lot of time in his kind of hospital bed in the front room um and mum and dad have had you know had 55 years of a really great working uh, marriage you know they were a really tight couple um great role model for me in so many ways but you know for all the obvious reasons this was a relationship now under stress not only was dad terminally ill and we all knew that um but he and mum couldn't operate in the way that they had always operated in the house in terms of who's doing what and a shared responsibility and who's looking after who and all of that, all of that broke. Um, And, you know, living in that house with them, I could, I could see them being bickering is probably the best word for it. It's like they weren't having flat out arguments, but they were kind of like, you know, had moments of being frustrated and irritated with each other. hundred percent natural and to be expected, but, it was, it, it provoked me to kind of say, why don't I see if I can facilitate a conversation between my mum and my dad about how they'd like to be together over the remaining, we weren't sure, but, you know, weeks or months of dad being alive. And they were, <laughs> I was like, I was kind of like, oh man, this is going to be awkward. And now like, this sounds like the worst idea in the world. <laughs> I don't want to have that conversation. We're not that type of family. And, um, But eventually they kind of went, they were, dad, dad said, okay, I think that's probably a good idea. And mum came around to it as well. Um, And they had this conversation and um, it was very lovely. They did a really good job and the answers didn't even really matter. It was really just a a re-expression of their own commitment to each other and, and their own kind of, uh, ability to be with each other in this hard time uh, and uh, and this capacity to kind of go we are going to give it we're, we're figuring out how to be with each other in this very very difficult time. And I say all of that just to say that I hope for some people um, the tools in this book are not just about the folks that you work with in whatever capacity it's also about the people that you live with and the
0: important people in your life. Yeah. Yeah, that's really touching and actually makes me think about the necessity for this type of conversation around the world right now, you know, when there's when there is a kind of uh increased polarization taking place and yeah. othering of different types of people, but to be able to actually be curious and yeah. you know, actually seek to understand people and 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 meet on a you know, more intentional level. I think that 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 awkwardness we all feel you know, yeah. I mean, for me, it's like I always feel that when I'm getting more vulnerable with people and it's and, and I can almost never say like it's not worth it on the other side. You know, right. You know, I'm, I'm glad I did that.
1: Yeah. Like, you know, two years now after my dad's died, my mom's going through some health challenges and kind of losing some some of her mental capacity. Um, and so I'm now having these type of conversations with my two brothers who are both in Australia. I'm in Canada now. Um, as we we're trying to figure out how best to support our mum going through this stuff. And we're also not just making it about the work, her, and you know, where she's living and what support she needs. We're talking about how we're doing between us. Because, you know, there's a way that this situation can create conflict or misunderstanding or frustration or whatever it is between the three of us working together so we're doing a really good job at talking about how we're doing not just how's mum doing
0: yeah is is yeah again um i really hope this inspires a lot of people to check out your book and start doing this more of like the more we talk the more i'm like this is actually really important yeah. and you know um fun as well uh and i just want to ask if there's anything we haven't asked you about about the book that you think is important to yeah. to share. Yeah, well, I'd say, um, you know,
1: the, the, we've talked about three of the five questions in the keystone conversation. Um, we've talked about uh, the value of the best possible relationship being safe and vital and repairable and how one of the key calls to action is you being brave enough to initiate this conversation. And in the book, there's kind of scripts on what you could say around, you know, how to get going on this. Um, the one thing we haven't really touched on is, is what you do after the conversation. And there are six principles of maintenance. And let me mention, um, three of them. One is, uh, adjust always, which is that you're always kind of fine tuning the relationship. You're checking in with each other. Um, the second is repair often. And the third is, well, I can't even remember. It's something as needed. Um, re- it's like reset as needed, which is like either We need to kind of start this relationship again, or we need to end this relationship. And I just want to talk a little bit about the repair often one. Um, It comes with this understanding or this belief that um, we will often inadvertently or sometimes intentionally kind of just tear the fabric of the, the relationship that we're in. And most of the time, we just ignore that and carry on. Um, And if you're more active about going, is there anything I need to fix here? (laughs) Is there anything I need to sort out so we can keep this relationship clear and clean and open-hearted as long as possible, so much the better for all of us. So I would say that there are three things that you can do to be a person who commits to the repairing of a relationship. The first is to be the person who speaks up when you notice something going wrong or you felt something's wrong or you've, you've had some minor hurt, um, or major hurt. You know, it's, uh, so often we swallow that, but if you're the person who is willing to name that, that can be a great gift to the working relationship. The second thing you can do is be the person who is uncovering. And maybe being a bit, a bit preemptive about what might be going wrong. And the question that I use and I love is called, is this, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said? You know, I have a podcast called two pages with MBS, uh, where I get brilliant people to read the best two pages from a favorite book. And at the end of every interview, I go, what needs to be said in this interview that hasn't yet been said between the two of us? And it's great. There's always something to say. (laughs) There's always something that hasn't that needs to be spoken into the space. And, you know, I I have two main teams that I manage. Um, and I will ask, it's not a, not every time, but probably once a month, just to check in with Ainsley, who's the key person on one team, and Shannon, who's the key person on the other, um, just because it allows us to surface stuff that might be lingering and unspoken. Uh, in particular, because in both of those teams, I'm the person who holds most of the power, most of the status, I'm the founder, I'm the boss, all of that sort of stuff, I'm the I'm the white, straight guy. Um, so that allows uh, a door opening that might be otherwise closed just because of the way the power relationship is working. Mm. And then the third thing to say about repairability is, um, if you're able to be the person who knows how to say sorry and to offer up a genuine apology, that can be a real gift to the the relationship as well. So having the conversation, but also as part of maintenance, repair often is a really
0: powerful act. And just to make sure I understood it, what do you do do with your teams once a month? You you ask.
1: Oh, yeah. In in a part of our regular conversations and questions, I'll just say typically towards the end of that check-in, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said. Yes. Yeah. Yes um yeah and you know often enough it's nothing it is like it's clear but it's just a ch- it's a chance to go have i stepped over anything are you stepping over anything is there anything yeah. brewing or you can feel it coming and you don't quite have the words for it yet or you're not even sure if it's true but you thought maybe i'll speak it out um yeah and that's what i'm trying to give space to
0: yeah beautiful yeah i feel like um um this is probably a good place to bring this to close. And and um, it's been a really rich conversation. Uh, and I really want to encourage people to check out the book as well. I'm sure you do as well. But um, yeah, yeah. And is there, uh, is there anything that hasn't been said, you know, that you want to? <laughs> yeah, I did, I did think question. I'm not going like to steal his question, but I'm no, going to
1: steal the question. I just yeah, stole it. Wait. Um, I'm not sure. I feel like I've covered a lot. Um, but let me ask you, of all the stuff we covered, and I know you've you've had a chance to yeah. uh, read an early copy of the book, um, wh- what's been most useful or most valuable for you in this
0: conversation? Uh, I mean, I think the, the most valuable thing is getting a sense of the kind of relationship that could be created. That's what grabbed a hold of me. That's why I kept on yeah. going, oh, this is really important. Because as you were speaking, I could – get this sense of, because of my own past experiences of relationships, which didn't go as well, particularly, but even actually all my relationships where you just kind of enter into them and then you don't really talk about, you're just in the relationship and you don't talk about, you don't kind of like step out of it and look down on the relationship. And so that's the sense I'm getting, which touches me is like, no, the potency of actually having a conversation like this Hmm. And, and, and making it conscious and, yeah. and that, how transformative that could be.
1: Yeah, you put it beautifully because you're stepping out of that first level in, which is let's do the work and stepping back and going, let's talk about us and the relationship, because that creates the parameters and the capacity to do the work
0: even more brilliantly. Yeah. Nice. And um, tell me about uh, where we can when the book is out and where can we find out more about your work yeah. and the book and stuff?
1: The book arrives June 27th, uh, 2023. Um, If you're hearing this before then, then at bestpossiblerelationship.com, there's a bunch of pre-order bonuses that you can get because, you know, authors are desperate to try and get the pre-orders going. And um, so I'm, ethically bribing people as much as possible. My, my goal is, my hope is that people buy two books, one for them and one for the other person they want a best possible relationship with. And um, there's courses and downloads and all sorts of free stuff that you can get if that intrigues you. Um, and then after June 27th, best possible relationship will be where you can get the assorted bonuses that are, come with the book including me demonstrating a keystone conversation. And of course you can find how to work with almost anyone in all the regular places you would otherwise find a book.
0: Nice. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Joel. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then